melded together into a, a community with all the ups and downs and all the stuff that goes on. But like I think I mentioned in the beginning, it always feels like, like magic to me. The first night I remember thinking, ah, oh, there's so many of us and we're all so different and how are we ever going to get through the nine days together? And here we are. It's great. I've just been so much appreciating speaking with everybody and uh, whatever you're going through, the kind of the depth of commitment that it takes just to still be here. Someone was saying, you know, I feel like all I'm doing is just going after pleasant, going after pleasant. All I do, that's all I see, that's all I do. And I thought, you know, if all you, if all anyone was doing here was going after pleasant, no one would last a day here. Really, I mean, you know, you'd be out of here. So just, you know, widen out the scope, give your mind and aspirations some credit. I want to talk a little bit tonight about wise intention. Something that it comes up frequently, has come up frequently here, different people saying a kind of a, seems as though it's a paradox that we keep stressing in the instructions in working with awareness that what we're cultivating is this steady momentum of awareness that's non-interfering, non-aggressive, not trying to fix, right? Just watching what's occurring to see, to learn how the mind and heart works. And that is what we're stressing. And then, you know, people, often people say, but what about action in the world? Is it just, how do we, you know, you've heard those questions. So I want to talk about it because it's, it's not really a paradox. It's just an incomplete kind of understanding. So the first thing just to say, when we talk about, just to notice the steady awareness, taking it with you, arising, whatever's happening, you've been acting, Right? You've been acting with body, mind, and speech consistently through all your time here. And awareness has been coming along. Just to point out, (laughs) awareness can be aware of action. It's not either awareness or action. We're bringing awareness into our activities. But what I really want to talk about is the steady awareness that's not interfering, that gets just right into, just, you know, surrenders into what's ever occurring in this moment, resting at ease, knowing it fully, feeling it completely. That is, turns out in the way of the Buddhist teaching as wisdom grows to be the farthest thing from passivity. It's really just the opposite. It's movement into uh, the ability of heart and mind to respond appropriately in situations rather than from these kind of knee-jerk reactions we're not even quite aware of. The Buddha was very clear that action is how we can tell our understanding. He said, a fool is characterized by their actions. A wise person is characterized by their actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment, one's wisdom, shines. So he's so clearly saying, you know, that the the clarity that comes from our understanding leads to wise action. So I'll say a little bit more how he defines that. One of my favorite quotations from Mahagosananda who was a Cambodian, he's passed away, but he was a Cambodian Buddhist monk, peace activist, uh, teacher of uh, wisdom and also metta, loving kindness, in the Cambodian refugee camps in Thailand during the time of the Khmer Rouge. He happened to be out of, not in Cambodia, when all the uh, devastation and killing was happening when the Khmer Rouge were killing so many millions of Cambodians and basically most of the monks and nuns. And he, most of his family was killed, so he was touched directly. It's not that because he was out of the country, he didn't feel it. And he went to the refugee camps where all the displaced Cambodian people and families that were left were living. And because it was a largely Buddhist country, and many of the people were Buddhist, they really would respect him, and he would go and make a little you know, temple in the middle of the refugee camp. 
<clears throat> and when he'd come and the people would come, he would start just quoting the Buddha, the really, you know, this is how it is, that hatred never ceases by hatred, only by love alone does hatred cease. Like, wow, just to, to have that depth of, you'd have to really know that, you know, not just say, this is a good idea, I think I'll tell it to these people whose lives have been devastated, but to go in and really just actualize that. And then later he led peace marches throughout Cambodia. <clears throat> anyway, he was quite an activist. So he just said this once at a, at a, at a demonstration against landmines. All the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So to understand and thus remove the landmines in our hearts is the way to remove them in the world. This is really, I think, very directly the link between the wisdom that arises through the steady, 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 non non-choosing awareness. I mean, not choosing to just pay attention to what we think is good and ignoring what we don't, but the steady awareness that reveals what's really going on is where this wisdom and the ability, the natural response of heart and mind really shifts. We can bring it along, but it shifts naturally from being caught in greed and ill will, in hatred or cruelty, to uh, renunciation, which is just renouncing the greed, generosity, <clears throat> meta-loving-kindness, compassion. Sure, there's many things we can do, ways in our life that we can actively cultivate these, and that's a whole other talk. That's certainly true. But first, to really start to see that with the wisdom that comes from accurately recognizing what's going on in these crazy minds of ours, you know, when we start to watch that the natural effect of wisdom is that our motivations start to change. That's what I want to talk about, this quality in our heart, in the mind of intention or motivation. I mentioned this this little first two verses of the Dhammapada in one of the groups today. The Dhammapada is um, one of the most well-known section of verses from the... <clears throat> the Buddhist Tipitaka. Sorry, I should have gotten some water. Well, anyway. So these are the first two pairs, very well known. All experience is preceded by mind or led by mind, made by mind. <clears throat> Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. Corrupted mind Guess what makes a corrupted mind? It's subtle. We haven't talked about it too much. Thank you, Franz. The three are three friends, right? You know, you know what our three friends are, right? Just checking. <laughs> Just a whole week if you didn't know. It's like, oh. <laughs> Speaker act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. <clears throat> Second couplet. All experience is preceded by mind or led by mind. The word for mind, same as the word for heart, right? So mental activity made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, heart, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. The point being that the seed of all action according to the way the Buddha saw it, and we can explore this in our experience with our steady awareness, the seed of action isn't the act itself, but what the intention, the quality in the heart-mind that gives rise to the action. So this is a very, the way the Buddha talks about intention, it's a very specific Um, mental factor or quality of mind. We talk about, in English, intention can kind of have a a couple of of different precise meanings. One is the really broad intention, aspiration, sort of like 
Steve and Alexis both spoke about, I think, like what is my intention in life, what's most important to me, or even my intention when I go back is to do X, Y, Z. It's still, you see, it's kind of broad, even it's like for a whole day or a whole year or a whole life, it's a wide-ranging thing. But we, in English, often use the same word, intention. But that's not the specific intention we're talking about here, um, it's a Pali word, chetana, and it's referring to in any, in any mind moment, the energy kind of coalesces that it's a little kind of feeling of a little uh, a little uh, that leads to speech, that leads to action. You, know, you say even thoughts, but let's stick with noticing it before action and speech. And they say before every movement, Every speech, there's this, it's, it's, it's not personal, it's just, uh, again, the whole series of cause and effect, but this energy kind of, best I can describe it, energy kind of coalesces and it gives a little about to do, just, uh, and then there's the movement, then there's the speech, then there's the what. So it's a moment-to-moment thing, very precise and immediate. And it arises, of course, due to whatever conditions are going on, and when the Buddha spoke about wholesome or skillful, unwholesome, unskillful speech and actions, wholesome karma, unwholesome karma, he was very clear it's the intention that is what marks something as wholesome or unwholesome. In other words, what brings it into suffering for ourselves or others. So often we tend to think how something looks to us, like we could be trying to do a good thing for somebody, and it looks like the right thing, but but we could be filled with fear, or filled with aversion, or let me do this thing so they can just stop suffering and get out of my face. You know what I mean? It's like, even though you're doing something that's ostensibly kind, it's not, it still isn't a bad thing to do, you know, but internally, what's being fed what's being strengthened in one's own mind heart stream at that moment would be the aversion or would be the fear. So you get a sense what I mean. So you could, so the same action from the outside could be arising from very different uh, qualities that are motivating in the, in the heart and the mind. That's the whole uh, source of skillful means. When, when we keep talking about, you know, you're in pain in a sitting, when should you move? And, you know, we just kind of want a list. Go for this amount of time, and then when it's like this, move. And we always say, no, it totally depends on the situation and the state of your mind and all, because it's really what's the quality that motivates that movement. You see, it could be aversion. It could be compassion. It could just be clear seeing, a kind of a neutral question. Oh, yes, this is causing pain. The, the reaction's getting too strong, so I'll move. So all of those, it looks the same. Are you getting a sense... Okay, right. So that's, that's the seed of action. And it's so a subtle thing happening every mind moment that we need this steady, steady awareness that we've been cultivating to begin to really notice that this is even occurring a lot of the time. We might notice the grosser ones. We might notice, uh, you know, I really feel a sense of love and I want to do something to help you. But the moment to moment, because the mind and heart is arising and passing in every moment, it can be changing so quickly. So without the awareness, for, for most of us, a lot of the time, not always, but the reason we've been so, well, the Buddha talks so much too about really bringing in the awareness to see the difficult aspects. We also want to see and appreciate and really feel the wholesome, the beautiful qualities. But the reason we want to keep noticing when greed is is arising, when aversion is, because it's so familiar, we so often don't recognize it, that it is, as we were saying, the default mode. So often it's like the things are happening underneath the level of consciousness. It's just habit just habit driving the bus, say the difficult habits of mind. So um, Tara Bennett Goldman in one of her books gave a good example of just how habits, the kind of default mode, they take less energy mental habits and they can just operate underneath conscious awareness a lot of the time. 
And I love the example she gives is if you're driving, you know, you're listening to music or whatever, and changing lanes on a busy freeway. Now, a, lot, a lot's really going on, isn't it? In the mind and seeing and hearing and thinking and checking the perceptions and, and the movement of the hands and the movement of the eyes and the movement of the leg. There's a whole lot going on. But if you've been driving for a long time, that's just almost second nature, isn't it? You can change lanes and be drinking coffee. And if you drive on the freeway in L.A., you know, people are, they're doing everything while they're driving on the freeway. It scares me to death. But, you know, they're putting on their makeup, they're shaving, they're talking on the phone, they're drinking their coffee. It's like, you know, because they're in the car for two hours on the way to work. But anyway, you get a sense it's just operating below the level of consciousness a lot of the time. And that's what's happening frequently with these habits of our mind. We don't quite see what's going on, and it's the steady mindfulness that lets us start to see it. So someone mentioned it's very common in a group being aware, say, of a pain in a particular part of the body, and you're watching it and watching the mind, and awareness is there. You see the aversion come, you see it go, you see the sensation, it's not moving. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you move without having recognized or consciously saying, now I'm going to move. Can anyone relate to that? Just what? You watch it ten times, and you just, and all of a sudden you moved. That's the moment. So in that moment, you'd had all these intentions for whatever reason. You're not going to move. I'm not going to move. I'm exploring it. But as soon as awareness goes away, it's just, oh, yeah, right, move. That's, you know, (laughs) it's unpleasant. We move. I'm out of here. It's just, it just is what we do from habit. It's not inevitable. (laughs) But you see why the awareness of noticing this is so key. Because that's a little thing. Big picture. So you move. So what? You know, it's not the end of the world. And you're wondering why do we make such a big thing that you didn't notice you moved. Like, it's not that you failed. But it's like, this is really a little example of what's going on. So start exploring why we think well, have you ever noticed where you have some really good intentions in your life? Really sincere, but you, you can't quite follow through for some reason. Like I'm going to sit every day. <laughs> or, you know, when I go back home, I'm, I'm not going to get drawn into that difficult interaction with my family member. I'm just going to radiate love and compassion. Have you ever tried that one? But we mean it, right? How come we can't do it? A good example from a retreat with Utejania a few years ago at IMS, um, because it's in group, I think I can say it. So someone was saying she went into the the dining room and, you know, the menu's up on the blackboard there. And she saw in that menu that there was something that, it, it wouldn't make her really ill, but something that she really couldn't digest well that wasn't good for her to eat. So she saw it, and she said, she saw wisdom come up just with compassion. Oh, I'm not going to eat that because it's really, I care about my body. And then she found herself heaping it on her plate, eating it all, you know, and then going away and feeling rotten. And so she said to say, well, how could that happen? I had the intention to care for my body and not to eat that. But that's not what happened. <laughs> and, and, I mean, he made one of his jokes, you know. He said, well, it was like, Weak wisdom and strong kalatia, which is partly true. What I would say is that moment of wisdom, of really seeing a wisdom, that was a true moment of intention, of wisdom and compassion. But then a lot of time we have that, and then, then there's not the steady momentum of awareness because every moment's a new arising mind moment. So that moment was a moment of wisdom and compassion. Then the awareness was kind of abandoned or whatever. And then the, the old habits of, well, that looks good. I think I'll eat it. It really tastes good. And just the greed habits just come up. Or the delusion habits. I mean, I don't know what was in her mind. So you see, you can get a sense where the steady awareness, not to make yourself do the right thing, but to watch and even learn why you're doing the other thing. I think I, I really don't want to eat it and, I, and I'm eating it, you know, a big pile of that stuff. Well, let the awareness come along and we start to see what's going on because until there's the awareness and the wisdom of seeing how these patterns work, I don't know about you, but I don't really believe it. You know, so, you know it's, we just kind of check out. But seeing how it's working, 
to me that really brings in the, the samvega, really, the uh, urgency, the willingness to keep on practicing, to keep on cultivating awareness. Because, and I don't mean this in a, in a um, discouraging, <laughs> in a discouraging manner, but the more I've been watching and practicing, and the less you take it personally, the easier it is to just see, oh, this is how these patterns work. If greed's in the mind and it's, we're not aware of it, it's easy for it to arise in the next moment. The more I've practiced, the more I've seen how really um, deeply conditioned these patterns are. Quite a few of you have been saying, oh my God, I'm just seeing like craving, craving, craving everywhere. You know, what's the matter with me? And we'll say nothing. There's a reason the Buddha picked it as the cause of suffering. It wasn't just like, let me just pick something, you know. What's the cause of all the suffering in our minds? Craving, what that must come up once in a while? You know, of course, (laughs) we're going to see it a lot. That's a good thing if we can keep on with awareness. But, with lack of steady awareness, the, the sense of urgency comes to me because without the awareness, without really understanding these patterns and allowing the wisdom to uh, appreciate and grow the wholesome motivations, the wholesome intentions, in moments of stress, in moments of crisis, when awareness falls away, what's, what's the default mechanism that's going to come up, you know? I read this, this one little statement frequently because it so touched me. Where I heard on the radio was a discussion with a, a, young, a young man who was in prison, I think for life. He was young, I didn't hear anything else about him or what he did. He was in prison for life and they were having an interview with him and he was just saying with so much sincerity that I wish I could take back the three to five seconds of my life where this violent act just came up. Three to five seconds. But can you relate? You know, it's just, because it's not an act of will, I'm not going to act from aversion anymore. With all the wider intentions in our heart, if we don't know how our mind and heart works, if we're not trusting or we haven't really, we're not continuing to cultivate whenever we can awareness, to just keep watching and to be willing to when to bring in the awareness when the unwholesome motivations come and meet that with kindness, with compassion, not with judgment. That's the whole point of this non-judging awareness to see how how it's working. And if we're if we are bringing in the awareness with a judgment or trying to fix it, there's no way to see what's really going on. As soon as there's ill will, as soon as there's some kind of of uh, not wanting to see it clearly, we can't recognize accurately what's the appropriate thing to do. The Buddha said, one of my favorite quotations, when one is dwelling with a heart or a mind that's obsessed or oppressed by ill will, he also says the same thing for greed and the same thing for delusion. And does not understand, as it really is, the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion, on that occasion, he's not saying this is who you are forever, he's saying on that occasion, when the mind is obsessed with ill will, one cannot know or see as it really is one's own good, or the good of others, or the good of both. So he's not saying bad, wrong, he's just saying when the mind's obsessed by ill will, when it's obsessed with greed, you can't see what's good for you, what's good for others, or what's good for both. So even when we want to do the right thing, if we're not um, bring, in the habit of bringing in awareness and just watching what's going on in the mind, we can get, we can get so tricked, we can get, just, just don't know. I often feel like, uh, again, the sense of, actually respect for the power of the habits, the unwholesome habits of mind, but that same respect will start to come in for the wholesome habits because they develop naturally in the light of awareness. But um, some years ago, not that long ago, maybe three years ago, I was in a new muse- relatively new museum in Atlanta 
It's called the Museum of Civil Rights and Human Rights. And on the, so it's, you know, all about this whole civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, and very, very moving museum. But just the point I want to make now is on the top floor, it's just talking about human rights and various, it just says, it's mostly writings and photographs, and just pointing to various times and histories of uh, human rights crimes. You know, so I'm not going to go into any particular, but this one point is just saying, um, while systematic human rights crimes often start with a small, powerful group, they can only be carried out if others are persuaded or coerced to join in or deliberately look the other way. But basically just saying for ordinary people, I think, what would I have done if I was in, in the Holocaust? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't been in that situation. For ordinary people, the pressure to take part in abuse or to look away is real, you know? It's a, they risk punishment, they risk death, they risk danger to their families, all kinds of things, huge fear. So it's just saying, it's just kind of making a point of that and kind of taking, bringing it home and saying, looking in your own heart and mind, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's just a whole great process in that museum. But what it just makes me think of when I was visiting Dachau or any of the horrible stuff that's going on in this country, you know, the violence and the racism and all kinds of stuff, if we're not really tuning in, in our own heart and mind, in a moment of stress, who knows what, what's going to come up, what we would do. Like that young man in prison, you know, we want to take back that three to five seconds. So we can't control all of that. And this isn't to make us feel all scared. And for this is to just to um, hopefully inspire us to really have the, the urgency out of love and compassion for ourselves, for our families, for all beings. That the place that starts the best way we can manifest that in the world is by starting with, with what we're doing here and how, that, how those two come together. So all this just being with being with being with isn't some esoteric kind of mental game that has nothing to do with life in the world. It's exactly the reverse, really coming to know how would we act in such a situation? We don't know till we're there. We know what we want to do, you know. So here, every moment that there's the, just the ability, the willingness to allow the awareness to feel, to notice what's going on, that's a moment of strengthening this power of seeing, and that's what gives rise to the natural wisdom. And what's so cool, really, is that in the light of wisdom, the, the habits driven by Kalesha, acting from Kalesha, it just doesn't make sense in that moment. We talk about, I don't really like to talk about letting go of a particular action or a particular intention, because to me, that's just my mind. To me, letting go has a little, can have a little tinge of aversion. Get rid of, I'm, I'm letting go of this, you know. But when we just are with it, without adding the extra judgment, it stops making sense. And as the Buddha said in his own practice before he became a Buddha, he was watching, watching his mind and just seeing how, he said, I have two types of thoughts. I can put them on two sides. So he's, he's, this is, he's not the Buddha yet, but he was pretty, you know, he was pretty good, right? He was pretty far up there. And he still, he said, when I was walking or sitting, really being very, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the sutta here, very committed and paying attention, thoughts of greed would come up in my mind. Thoughts of ill will would come up in my mind. Thoughts of cruelty would come up in my heart. Okay, so maybe we could cut ourselves some slack. If this guy, he's still pretty close to being a Buddha, these thoughts come up. It's just a habit. And he said, just by, and he said he would just notice, oh, a thought of cruelty has come up. If I really explore it, I see that it leads to my own suffering and the suffering of others. So I don't pursue that thought. 
But he's not, he's just looking at it. He's not saying, oh my God, I can't believe this came up. This is terrible. What am I going to do? Say, oh, a thought of cruelty has arisen in my mind. <laughs> really? <laughs> so awareness. And then he saw, same, same for thoughts of ill will and greed. And then he saw on the other side, a thought of generosity, a thought of renunciation would come up, a thought of friendliness, of metta, a thought of compassion. And he'd say, oh, I see this has arisen. And I see as I look at it, I see no harm to myself or another that can come from being with this thought, from contemplating this thought. Even if I stayed with this thought for a day and a night, I see no harm that could come from it. Except, he's so practical, I could tire myself out. I could tire my body and my mind out from just staying and thinking and thinking for so long. So then I stopped thinking about it. He's just so practical. <laughs> but anyway, so seeing, this is what he calls wise intention, the second step of the Eightfold Path. The first step, right view, wise understanding. We begin there and it keeps on cycling deeper than where we practice, you know, and wise understanding, how we understand the world gets deeper and deeper and more comprehensive. But even in the beginning, in a moment of wise understanding, in a moment of panya, a moment of wisdom, the natural expression of that is going to be that the, the intention of greed, the intention of ill will or of hatred, isn't what arises, but rather it would be one of renunciation or generosity, of friendliness, of compassion. So just thinking in your own mind, notice tomorrow or tonight, just those moments when you're aware, the heart and mind, it could maybe just calm, whatever's going on though, you can see that the heart and mind isn't kalatia ridden at that time. You know what I mean? Just not, it's not riddled with greed. It's not riddled with ill will. Maybe it's just neutral, but maybe it's also wholesome. But just notice that in that moment, there's like a space. You know, when there's self-involvement, remember I read from Desmond Tutu the other night, when we're so self-involved, our whole world shrinks and we create a sense of self and other and, and difficulty and fear. When it's not Kalesha-ridden, just notice this. There's a kind of a space. And in that space, the kind of wisdom, you don't have to think this, but the whole situation is recognized just more accurately. And if there's something to do, to say or to do, the response can just come up much more naturally appropriate from connectedness, from recognizing the whole situation, either letting go of clinging, generosity, friendliness, it's just the natural response, doing what's obvious. Sure, we can cultivate it also in our lives, but to notice that it's the natural effect response of wisdom, I, I, I just want us to keep exploring that because that's what really, for me, feeds and strengthens faith. The faith, the confidence, not because it's not about you're so great or I'm so great or I can do it. That's just a a self-involved way of looking. The confidence is in the laws of nature, the laws of Dhamma. It's like having confidence in gravity. You know, you don't have to think about, do I have confidence in gravity? I hope you're not going around thinking about that. And so the more we start to see both that unwholesome, unrecognized, just makes it easier to come up in the next moment, but to see that with clear seeing, with wisdom, then what more naturally arises is the renunciation, is the, the friendliness, is the non-cruelty or the compassion. Learning to trust that. It's not like you have to do it with an act of will. Just like hopefully we're learning at times to trust that awareness arises again by itself. Have you noticed that from time to time? We keep pointing it out. Sometimes it feels like a lot of effort, right? But other times, you're lost in thought. You don't think in five seconds, I'm going to arouse awareness. It just comes. All of a sudden, it's here. That wasn't your act of personal will. Just like that. Noticing that, the faith can deepen. So I just, then I want to just, um, just talk a little bit about these three wise intentions. Mostly, 
just because we talk so much about the kalashas, it's really important with steady awareness, wisdom, to also recognize the wholesome. When we've talked about the five spiritual faculties, a lot of that reason is to recognize when wholesome qualities are present in the heart and the mind. Because when wisdom recognizes the wholesome, this is the Buddha's language, it feeds the wholesome. This is another thing we can trust, have confidence in. When wisdom is recognizing the kalashas, it's just, oh, look at that greed. Greed is like this. You know, when we're caught in it, we're caught. But when wisdom's watching it, as Tejaniya says, we're seeing how greed does its job, and you see what it does, but it's not being strengthened by the awareness. But wholesome, when it's recognized by awareness, actually it grows. Awareness feeds it. I mean, awareness, wisdom feeds the whole. Awareness doesn't feed it. Wisdom feeds it. And that's like a really, a really cool aspect of the way the universe works. <laughs> that wholesomeness strengthens wholesomeness. That wisdom strengthens wholesomeness. It's not all about, I've got to sit here and get all these good qualities, get rid of all these bad qualities, and do it now. I mean, good luck. So I just, I mean, each of these could be a talk in itself, but I just want to talk a little bit about them because they're all, they're wonderful. So renunciation, which is actually a very happy quality of heart and mind. It's not the biggest one going in this culture, I would say. <laughs> and I think maybe, maybe I don't know, I don't know where you're all at in understanding that. I think it's often misunderstood. The Buddha too, you know, he said, there's a sutta where he said when he first was heard about renunciation, he said, my heart did not leap up at the thought of <laughs> renunciation. So we're in good company. But I really think, I mean, this is from my experience, really, because we don't understand what that renunciation means. Remember, we're talking about intention, quality in the mind and the heart. Not, it's not externals so much as in the intention. So... Renunciation, wisdom is recognizing how this greed, which we've talked about a lot, how the greed works. And renunciation is when that is seen through in a moment, it's the quality of mind that just renounces the greed itself. We think of renunciation as getting rid of the objects, but this is the same misperception that we tend to do with greed as well. We think we miss feeling the noticing the greed because we're looking to the object. And greed is a real quality of mind, this thirst, this tanha. And we'll say, well, but it's okay if there's greed because this is a good thing that I'm greedy for, you know? Or then you think, oh, I'm so greedy because that's a bad thing I'm greedy for. And we're skipping over the quality in the heart and mind. But exploring, and here we're back to awareness, we're never going to get away from awareness. Never. It's good, like Alexis was saying, it becomes our friend, a friend that never leaves us because we need it. So renunciation is about recognizing the suffering aspect of greed. And in a moment when that's recognized, just for that moment, it dissolves. It doesn't mean that there's no appreciation for beauty or for whatever the thing is. It doesn't mean that we can never have the thing but it means the greed is abandoned in that moment. I think I, say, I, think I referred to this example in, in another talk, but I'll say it again in the last retreat. A woman came in in a group. She said she was completely blown away by e- exploring the quality of this greed because she was in a sitting and just had this incredible desire, greed. And desire in English covers a lot of different mental states too, so I'm deliberately not using it. I really mean this quality of greed, to scratch an itch. Well, you can imagine, you know, in a sitting, how feeling how strong it was. And then she wasn't scratching, not because of bad or good, but just to explore that quality of greed. So she was really, awareness was just exploring how the greed felt. And she said it was so strong, it was amazing. And then suddenly it flashed in her mind this is what I think I mentioned, when she was a teenager and she had this unbearable crush on somebody in her high school and just filled with greed. And she said, oh my God, this is exactly the same quality, the same intensity of greed to scratch this itch as it was 
when I was in high school thinking I was going to die from greed for this person. That was a huge insight. Do you get a sense of it? We, we're thinking it's about the object. No, it's about that quality in the mind. And seeing that in that moment, there was a real moment of, of wisdom, of insight. Where it's like, whoa, this is crazy, man. <laughs> and it just for that moment dropped away. Just for that moment. Explore. It's the craving that creates the dis-ease, not getting the object. So renunciation does um, actually breed a real quality of simplicity in the heart and mind, a kind of a contentment. Because with less craving, you, just, you, can, you can still do whatever you do, but you just, just have less need to go out and fill it up. And that it's not like you're left barren and empty. It's actually the sense of, of simplicity, of just being able to be present with contentment and appreciate what's here. On the other hand, one could live very simply out of a a forced idea of renunciation that has nothing to do with what's actually going on in the heart-mind. You know, uh, someone said to Utejaniya once, kind of projecting all this, oh, you're a monk, you became a monk after you were grown, an amazing renunciation, oh, you must feel so pure. And he won't put up with stuff like that for very long. And he goes, don't make up a whole story. I mean, I'm, I don't remember exactly what he said, but this was the drift. Don't make up a whole story. Just because someone's a monk, they can have the same amount of desire as you did in your life, only it's just channeled into only two objects, you know? Because there's not much you can do. You can have food, you can have robes. That's what they get. That's, that's, and believe me, I've heard, well, I've heard more, hung out more with nuns. It can get into very incredibly fine details about the robes. And then I've had friends that are nuns go on about, I don't know what they're talking about, you know, this, this length and how this hem is and how this folds and this one and that one. You know, same amount of greed can come in. So watching the renunciation is really this quality of just not needing to go with the greed, starting to feel the suffering of it. And it moves into generosity. Because when we're not holding, there's this, just this impulse to offer whatever is needed. And the thing about generosity, and maybe, maybe Steve will talk more about it tomorrow, is it's such a state of happiness. Generosity, just that act of offering and the act of receiving when you don't shut it down, the whole circle of that, it's a really happy state of mind and heart. It's really wholesome. But I think, uh, and, and we all know, I mean, I think we probably all know, we've had it implanted in us that giving is good, helping is good, and it is. But to actually tune into the moment-to-moment intention, that motivation, that movement, that quality in the mind and heart of first there's the renunciation, just the, the greed isn't making sense, and just the offering, it's a very happy state. Because it's, it's, actu- it's actualizing the interconnectedness, the non-separation in a way. So just, I'm just dropping these seeds in. Explore that. But recognize it. Even the Buddha even says contemplate at times. If you're feeling lost in negativity, sit and contemplate past acts of generosity of your body, speech, and mind. Not to say I'm so great, but because it it actually, in contemplating, remembering it, it can bring up a happiness, a wholesome happiness that can actually bring a brightness to the heart and mind. It's really like countering the kalashas. So same with our sila, by the way. Same with our non-harming conduct. All right. So moving into the, the next one, I'll put them together. Friendliness and compassion, non-harming non-ill will. Obviously, what arises when the habit in a moment of reacting to unpleasant or suffering with resistance or fear or aversion, that's our habit. And often we can be doing, I mean, I can see in myself that I want to do something to help someone and still it's better to do it than not, but that at times the motivation really isn't Compassion, because compassion is a real connecting with suffering. It's this quality that we bring in with our awareness. Being fully present, without resistance, without clinging, 
without blame, like really surrendering into it, feeling with. That's the quality of compassion or the quality of friendliness if it's not a suffering. Every moment that awareness is meeting experience, just like it is, just with that freshness, just with that kindness, being fully present, that's actually, in my opinion and experience, that's a moment that's actually feeding and strengthening the habit of heart-mind, of compassion, of metta. So all these seemingly nothing special moments of awareness, how our mind is meeting this moment is the practice of wholesomeness, of metta, of compassion, of non-greed. I think that's just really important to not to think about it, but to recognize, to feel it. Because when we recognize the wholesome, again, it strengthens it, and it strengthens our trust and faith. So compassion, metta, arises from not from the resistance to the difficult or something, but from connection, from simple being with, without the aversion that keeps us from seeing clearly. But then again, the point is, it's natural. It's a natural expression of a moment of panya, a moment of wisdom, a moment of presence. James Baldwin has a wonderful line, had a wonderful line, um, an enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. I really feel that once we hear the story, and that could be the story of your knee pain, right? So you really hear the story, that connection's there, that's compassion. It's natural when we're not lost in the aversion and the self-centeredness, not making someone the other. But it's not, it's not so supported. It's not really what I've learned in society, even though vi- verbally learned it. But what kind of works in the culture, what's supported in the culture, another thing. The Dalai Lama when asked about what looks like a lack of compassion in human society, he said, well, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling or reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. How I relate to that is just, you know, have grown up with a sense that really in the face of the difficult or scary or whatever, anger is not only the best defense, the only defense or the only protection, you know. And it's really, um, it's, it's... Intellectually, you can't just change that. But the more we see that the strength that can come on the, when the heart-mind is open and not lost in ill will and can see and recognize more accurately the strength of appropriate action that can come from compassion, that can come from metta, is really amazing. And we have more sense of what's accu- what can be appropriate to do. It's the last opposite of being a doormat. It's not like, oh, metta-compassion, okay, just walk all over me. Metta-compassion, it includes us, right? It's not like everyone else. Metta for everyone else, but this one here doesn't count. It's the whole situation. But the power of coming from, from another angle, from what the usual of society, is really powerful when it happens. There's another story I heard on NPR, on a, on a podcast of this um, program called Invisibilia. I don't know if you've ever heard it where they look at different things that, different ways the mind works really, things that affect society. So this particular story is a great story called about non, they're calling it non-complementary behavior. I really think it's like not just going along with the flow that we're taught in society. So this story, um, so two families, I don't know where it was, it sounded suburban somewhere, but didn't know where, were out in their backyard, and kind of like trees and bushes around, and on a summer evening, 
having a dinner together, like a picnic dinner out in their backyard on a picnic table, drinking some wine, having dinner, two families. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a man came with a gun, just kind of like just slid the gun in between two people, and they didn't see him coming where he came from, and basically, you know, threatened them with the gun and said, give me your money. So of course, you know, scared, startled, scared to death, and they said, well, but we don't have any money. And he was threatening the gun right up against someone's head. So first they're saying stuff like, well, what would your mother think if she saw you doing this? He said, well, I don't have a mother. Oh. And then all of a sudden, just one of the people said, would you like a glass of wine? And he's, oh. You know, just completely startled. Oh, okay. So (laughs) he had a glass of wine, sat down at the picnic tables with them. He's drinking some wine. They all start talking and chatting. They're having this whole conversation. I mean, the people were still scared, but this is like, you know, non-complimentary behavior. They're having the wine, they're talking, and after a while he says, you know, I can see I came to the wrong place. (laughs) So I'm going to go. So he gets up and he says, first, I want a hug from everyone. So they all hug him. They give him a glass of wine. He leaves. They, of course, run into the house and lock the door because <laughs> they don't know what's going to happen. Nothing. You know, they left the afterwards, they went and opened the door and he had taken, he'd drunk his wine and taken the glass and left it very neatly just right in front of the door, you know, for them to take it back. That was it. Cool, huh? <laughs> so it's not like it's always going to be like that, but get us the power a clarity takes to just in a moment come from the beautiful, the wholesome. It doesn't always work that way, I know, but sometimes it does. But it's not an easy thing to do. Metta, compassion, doesn't necessarily mean loving something. I used to think that with metta meant, well, you know, people that are really acting horribly, I have to love them. And the the mind, of course, would immediately go into resistance about that idea. But I I really like the way Ajahn Sumedho describes metta in regard to difficult people or situations. He says, it does not necessarily mean loving it in the way we think about it, but one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, a thing, a person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. That's what I consider to be metta. Does that sound like anything we've been talking about all week? Just witnessing the unpleasantness or the pleasantness or the neutrality in a person, a situation, a self, really present with it without creating anything around it. And out of that, wisdom arises and the wholesome qualities get stronger really more naturally. This is... This is our path. And it arises, there's only ever this moment. How the awareness is meeting this moment, what qualities are there in this moment. This is our path. This is our practice. We can't do anything about the past. The future is just an idea now. All the moments we've had here, you know, non-aggressive mindfulness and the momentum it builds, it's, it's, In some ways, I think it's the most powerful thing in the world for really bringing compassion and loving kindness and some kind of greater humanity to ourselves and to the world. Remember what I read Martin Luther King said, nonviolence means you not only refuse to shoot a person, you refuse to hate a person. But this isn't coming from the I refuse up here, it's coming from that deep, uh, inner wholesomeness that only comes from this ongoing practice, from the the practice of the heart and mind meeting the difficult without creating anything around it, meeting the beautiful without creating the craving around it. And so as you go through these days, as you go back home, we'll experience with the steady awareness, this first part you've seen a lot, more and more clearly and deeply, some people were saying that today, for yourselves, the actual suffering, the unsatisfactory quality of the unwholesome mind states. Someone was describing that about really deep anger today. 
being with it, being with it, caught, caught, caught. But at some point, it was so clear how much suffering that was. If you just keep noticing that without a judgment. The same with craving, caught, 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 or wanting, 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 or not caught. Like, I love it. Yeah, I'm going with it. But at some point, oh yeah, this is really suffering too. This isn't a judgment. And it doesn't mean that craving won't come up the next moment or anger won't come up the next moment. But the more that awareness is recognizing it, this is the wisdom. This is what will allow the spontaneous dissolving of the wanting of the ill will in a moment. What allowed whatever person it was at that dinner party to say, have a glass of wine. You know, that's not something you could plan ahead. There had to be a moment of spontaneous dissolving of fear that one could do that. And just even for a moment. And then the other thing we really rec- is recognize and appreciate and really feel the wholesome moments of quality in our mind. When there isn't clinging, when you walk outside or you go to eat and you're enjoying the food, but you're not lost in rabid greed about it. I'm sure there's moments like that. Or when you're, you know, you're not in aversion, that person who's just been bugging the hell out of you walks by and yeah, there's just nothing. You don't have to love them, but there's... There's nothing. There's no aversion. Appreciate. Appreciate the wholesome moments because it really starts to go in and feel it just like we're, just like we're feeling the, um, the difficulty, the kalashas. And then just a little thing to leave you with. Noticing there's many ways we can work. When we understand right attitude in our mind, we can really see the mind heart in a moment isn't colored by ill will or craving, then we can use this steady awareness with any meditation technique. Because then we can do it without getting caught in the striving, without getting caught in the ill will of trying to fix. And there's many ways of cultivating these wholesome qualities, different kinds of meditation and in our life. I mean, you know, all the different retreats could talk about different ways. The only thing I want to say now, just to play with here, is sometimes when you're not all lost in aversion, but just going through the day, to consciously bring in a shift of attitude, to bring in a sense of compassion or a sense of sharing, just in their mind, not even doing anything. This is something that that, uh, Mingyur Rinpoche talks about a lot. It can really change the whole tone of things. Just simple things. So say... You're washing your hands and just thinking, may I wash and clean my hands to be of service to all beings? Something like that. Something that makes sense to you. That's all. It, you just start doing that. It feels so different from just washing your hands and running out. Or every time before I eat, I think, may I eat this food you know, to strengthen my body to be of service to all beings? Whatever. I mean, whatever makes sense for you when you remember it. And not just saying, like when I was a kid, and we always, my parents always made us say grace before the meal. And each of my siblings, we had one, we say, and we would say it so fast that you couldn't even understand the word. Thank you. Okay, now we eat. You know, <laughs> like not like that. <laughs> Actually, knowing what you're saying, you know, but play with that. So this is my favorite. I often use this. I'll just end with that. Even when you go to bed, when you're lying down to go to sleep, Mingyur Rinpoche offers that how intention can transform neutral activities into wholesome ones. So sleeping. When you go to bed at night with the mind of bodhicitta, with the mind of, you know, cultivating awakening to be of benefit for all, we aspire that our sleep be the cause of increased capacity to help all beings. That's nice, huh? There you go. So you can even, like, look, go to sleep with a good conscience. I'm going to sleep. May my sleep strengthen my capacity to help all beings. Doesn't that feel different? And it's like, it's so easy. Just to incline the mind, the heart to the wholesome. So that's like kind of the heart of what we're doing. Some little example of how it, how it moves into action in our life. So thank you all for your kind attention. You just sit for a moment.
So sitting or standing or walking or sleeping for the benefit of all beings in this next half hour. And if you still have energy, you can sit again together at nine. Thank you.